The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the community. This created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Um, you're all extremely welcome to this week's seminar for the Trinity Centre for Early Modern History. Um, my name is Dr. Patrick Walsh. Um, I'll be chairing the seminar today. I think this is the first one I've done this term, certainly, I think this year. So good, it's good to be back in the chair. I'm particularly glad to be back here today in the chair to welcome uh, my former colleague, office mate, co-conspirator, regular at this seminar going back to, well, I'm not going to say how long, but certainly nigh on 15 to 20 years um, when it was the old Monday seminar upstairs in the arts block in a slightly cramped room. We're sitting on this, a seat was a premium seat um, and the dangers of arriving late and sitting on the corner on the floor are always risky. And Elaine Murphy, um, Dr. Elaine Murphy is an associate professor of history in the School of Society and Culture in the University of Plymouth um, on the south coast of England, and no better place, I think, for a maritime historian to be based than along there. Um, and Elaine is a PhD graduate of the history department here, having done her earlier degrees at UCD. Um, and she completed her PhD on the, on the naval aspects of the wars of the three kingdoms in the, the mid-17th century under the supervision of Jane Omar. In 2008. Um, she was known to many as one of the researchers on the 1641 Depositions Project, and I'm glad to see she still has her 1641 mascot teacup beside her today. Um, there in front of her, in front of us, um, Tool McCann. And as an editor of the um great, great edited project on Oliver Cromwell's letters. Um, forthcoming with Cambridge. Um, but Elaine is, I think, really best known as a maritime historian of the mid-17th century. Her most recent book, co-written with Dr. Richard Blakemore at the University of Reading, um, was the prize-winning The British Civil Wars at Sea, and a wonderful, wonderful jointly authored book. It's a perfect example of how to do that well. Um, while Elaine's current project um, uh, is funded by the prestigious Leverhulme Research Fellowship, prestigious Leverhulme Research Fellowship, awarded last year, um, and only started this year due to COVID, like so many things. Um, and she's focusing on the multiple and ver various interactions of women and the 17th century Royal Navy. And I think Elaine is going to talk to us in greater detail about those interactions, the variety of those interactions, and the origins and the newness of this project. And I think what she wants to stress is, this is very much a work in progress. So questions, feedback, ideas, criticisms, all I think very welcome. So I'm going to hand over to Elaine without further ado, and I invite her to share her slide, her, her slides. Yeah, thank you very much, Patrick. Uh, it's lovely to be here and to have the opportunity. Sorry, you've- 
excuse me, unmuted. So uh, thank you very much, Patrick. It's uh, lovely to be here. Um, as you said, this is very much a new project at some levels, though I have been tinkering with uh, some of it for rather a while. So I hope everybody can see my slides there. <clears throat> and I've called this uh, paper A Water Body House, uh, Women and the Stuart Navy. So this is really about women and the Navy in the 17th century. And I'd like to start with an anecdote. And um, this is a case study that I've known about for a long time. And indeed, I've actually possibly spoken about at this seminar before. In 1645, the Parliament in London conducted an investigation into the carryings on of Captain Richard Swanley in Milford Haven. Uh, Swanley was the uh, Admiral of the Parliamentarian Irish Sea, and in Milford Haven he was charged with defending um, the town of Pembroke from Royalist attack and patrolling the Irish Sea to um, seize Royalist and Confederate shipping. Now, in 1645, Swanley was accused of various things, uh, corruption, embezzlement, um, disrespecting his vice admiral, William Smith, and a number of other charges. But one of the charges, and this is the one that interests me most here today, was that he was accused of a dalliance with a woman called Belinda Steele. Now, at this point, Swanley's in his 50s, um, he's on his second marriage, and Belinda Steele's a much, much younger woman. And there are various complaints about Swanley and his carry-ons with um, Belinda Steele, that he's entertaining her alone in his cabin, that she and her sisters, who are also on board the ship, <clears throat> are malignant and light women, and that they make merry with dancing in the cabin. Now, these rumours are so persistent that they're widely talked about in the area, and indeed the sailors on Swanley's ship, the Lion, make up a song about it. And Swanley's ship becomes so notorious for the drinking and carryings on that one complainant writes that Swanley's ship has become a water body house at sea. And it's really that this case study that struck me because I've known about uh, this for a long time. I first came across Richard Swanley and the carryings on in 1645 in Pembroke uh, during my research for my PhD into the High Court of Admiralty Papers. And at this point in time, I wasn't particularly interested in Belinda Swanley per se. It was, if anything, an amusing anecdote, something of a punchline, which I should be very shameful to say, because I was much more interested in the political and naval ramifications of what was happening at the time. But in one of those kind of nice quirks, Belinda Steele kept coming back into my research orbit. As a fellow in the 1641 Depositions Project, she and her father, Richard Steele, who many of you may be familiar with, depose about their losses in Queen's County. And then I published an edition of the High Court of Admiralty papers that I used during my PhD research. And one of the things that struck me when I did this was actually how many women were at sea during the 1640s, coming and going across the Irish Sea on men of war captured by ships. And it got me thinking about, well, what's going on here? Was this common or was it not? And I started chatting with a few people and I ended up in Plymouth. And one of the things that struck me is I think there's something really interesting going on here. And I started wondering, if I could find out more about women at sea. Now, a couple of historians suggested that this would be something of a fool's errand, and they're not necessarily wrong on that. But this is, I said, a new project about women and the Stuart Navy. I do need to come up with a really good title for it. But this here slide gives you just a flavour of some of the themes that I'm hoping to explore in the project. So I'm very interested in who were the women were on board the ships, why they were there. 
But more importantly and more interestingly for me, I'm interested in their experiences at sea. What was it like to be on board a Stuart warship as a woman? And how did the sailors view them? Were they happy they were there? Were they unhappy? Were they superstitious? And it's really around these two kind of issues I'll speak mostly here today. But some of the other areas I'm investigating are women who did business with the Stuart Navy. From about 1646 on, we start seeing a massive expansion of the Navy. And this continues through with the restoration and the size and the dockyards expand massively. So there's huge opportunities for women to be involved doing business with the Navy as contractors and employees in this expanding naval infrastructure. The Stuart Navy will become the largest employer in the country. So of course, you can see lots of opportunities for women to do business. Obviously, as well, there's a lot of wars going on, uh, the Anglo-Dutch wars of the later 17th century, the civil wars, and the Navy's a bureaucracy, and it keeps great records about nursing and medical care. So I'm interested in women involved in nursing sailors. I'm also involved in, well, what was it like for sailors? How did they feel about their wives ashore? How did their wives ashore cope with separation? We tend to think of sailors in the early modern period as young men with few ties to the shore and a very transient attitude to women. Sailors, a wife in every port, going ashore to visit brothels. And of course, some of this is unquestionably true. But at the same time, and what I've found so far is that a lot of complex relations, a lot of long and loving relations and complex relations between sailors and their women ashore. And the kind of final thing I'm interested in is really how women dealt with the Navy. The Navy's a bureaucracy. And how did they deal with the Navy? How did they petition the Navy for pay and pensions? How did they get the money they were owed? How did they help to get their men folk who were prisoners of war abroad back? And also, and this is one of the topics I'm really finding quite fun, how did women cheat the Navy? How did they forge tickets? How did they get illicit pay? How did they cheat on their contracts? So they're kind of the overall themes to the project. Some of these areas I haven't done much on. So if you're really curious, I'm afraid this will be a watch this space. But so far, what I'm finding is a huge number of women are involved in contracting for the Navy. The list here gives you a flavour of the different types of work women were involved with. And I think what's really impressive for me is the sheer scale of things. It's not just one or two areas. Women are involved in virtually every aspect of ship manufacture and repair and supply. So um, in terms of thinking about sail work and sail making, one of the women I've encountered so far is a woman called Susan Harris, who in 1678 sought protection from the press gang for 16 of her sail makers. And she also demanded the return of another of her workers who'd been impressed onto the Royal James, which you can see here in this picture. My favourite naval contractor, and anybody who knows me will kind of get why I like this woman. This is a woman called Anne Pearson. And for about a 20-year period in the 1670s and 1680s, she's the rat poisoner in the Royal Dockyards. And she's employed to go around the various dockyards to go on board the ships, or her workers are, to lay rats bay and to poison the rats on the ship. So you can see a lot of ways in which women were doing business with the Navy. And one of the probably most interesting areas for me, as well as the rat poisoner, is actually women involved in flag making. Now, given the large number of women that we know were involved in the textile industry in the early modern period, it makes sense at a lot of levels that women would be involved both in the manufacture, the physical making and contracting to make flags, bunting, ensigns, jacks, boopers for naval ships in this period.
So imagine how many flags and signals that any ship is going to have on board them. And then also think about the way that this is going to change in the 17th century. So we have the various shifting political dynamics with um, the uh, death of the king when we need new flags. And this is what happens with Elizabeth Venner in February 1649. She's asked to make five flags with harps of the new form. And then this continues through into the restoration, where we have a lot of women, again, make involved in making flags. So huge flag consumption in this period. And again, the general wear and tear of life at sea. And indeed, the rats, if they get into the stores, absolutely eat through the flags at a phenomenal rate. So a lot of women involved in the manufacture of flags. And if anything... It, as I said, this is some of this is quite new, but so far, I think 90% of the flags I'm seeing being made for the Navy from about mid-1640s onwards through until the early 1700s. This is a trade and a business dominated by women. And the image on screen here is one of my favourite in the National Maritime Museum's collection. It's a flag from roughly 1652 to 1654. And you can see the actual shields, the harp and the cross are upside down, which is probably why this flag was never issued from stores to a naval ship. But given the period it's made in and given how many women dominated the flag making trade at this period, I'd have to say on balance, this was probably made by some of, I'm going to call them my women, but the women I've identified in the flag making business in this period. So that kind of gives you a kind of flavour of the project. But really, as I said, what I'd like to focus on here today is about why women were on board the ships. How do you find them and some of the ways in which we can think about their experience and what it might have been like. Well, the most important thing to understand in this period is that women were openly on board naval ships. It was no secret that they were there. They weren't in hiding. They were allowed to be on board ships. The problem is, because it's so common and not unusual, sailors, captains and officers rarely mention it. They're just there. They don't feel the need to say this. And that means, as a historian, and this is where it's something of a fool's errand, you often only find women when something goes wrong or if there's some form of problem. So we see this when we have the sinking of the London in March 1665. It blows up an accidental explosion uh, as it's sailing down the Thames estuary. And we learn from Samuel Pepys' diary that one woman uh, and 24 men were saved. And we know there were other women on board from news sources at the time. Who those women were or how many, we know nothing more. Nobody bothers telling us about that, but they were there. Or we have the case of the Selby in 1665, when Captain John Clark is court-martialed for various irregularities. His crew write a series of complaints that lead to the court-martial. They complain that he enlists his dog and pockets the pay. That's not actually uncommon. I have a number of examples of that. And actually that his crew complained that he entertained an idle woman with him in his cabin all night. So again, if the crew hadn't complained, if they hadn't felt that um, there were problems with their captain, we never would have learned about the presence of this and indeed the other women on board the Selby in 1665. And this is kind of one of the problems I'm dealing with, here, having to go through huge amounts of material to find women. But actually, they're popping up quite a lot. And so far, I've been able to kind of categorise why women are on board naval ships and who they were. 
Most women, unsurprisingly, are the wives and friends of the sailors, and they tend to visit the ship when it's in port, and they often stay on board for quite a while. They can be on board for a number of nights, a number of weeks, and indeed, some women will actually sail with the ship on the first part of the journey. So if you have a ship going from the Medway in Chatham, like this image, and say the ship is sailing across the Atlantic to the West Indies, it's actually quite common for the women to stay on board the ship until the last port in England, which is usually Plymouth. So then these women will be landed in Plymouth and then they have to make their own way home. Uh, this is often where things go wrong and this is actually often where they pop up in the records because of course these women have landed in Plymouth and they've come from Chatham, they want to go back to Chatham. And there's a question of who's going to pay for this. As a general rule of thumb, the women Sailors' wives are not carried long-term and we don't find them on board during Anglo-Dutch war battles. This is different to the 18th century. In the 18th century, so if you go to the late 18th century, the kind of Napoleonic French Revolutionary Wars, you find a lot of women on board naval ships in battles like the Battle of the Nile, but not in this period so far. We have lots of women on board selling goods and services, temporary visitors, members of the royal family and noble ladies often travel or visit men of war, and soldiers and diplomats' wives travel with their husbands. Um, during times of war, we often find a lot of refugees, women going on board men of war to escape, often from Ireland in the 17th century. I don't think that's going to be any great surprise to anybody here. And then we also find a very small number of women in disguise, dressed as men's in men's apparel on board warships in this period. And I'll come back to that one in a bit. But just to give you some examples and a flavour of some of the women who are on board ships and why they're there. So, as I said, royalty travel quite commonly. It's the norm for the king or a, a prince to send a warship to collect his future bride-to-be, like Charles II sending a ship to collect his queen, Catherine of Braganza. And here we have Queen Henrietta Maria in the 1640s, and she travels a lot by sea. She goes abroad to seek arms and support for the king's cause. And in February 1643, parliamentarian warships open fire on the Queen and her ships as they unload arms at Bridlington uh, in Yorkshire for the Royalist cause. Now, the Queen herself publicly says she's not bothered by this. And the Royalist news books praise her princely courage and how bravely she faced the threat. But actually, the Queen comes to hate travelling by sea, the storms that she faces coming under enemy fire. And in a private letter to King Charles I, she writes, I dread the sea so much that the very thought of it frightens me. So you get this real sense of how much she loathed travelling by sea. Unfortunately for Henrietta Maria, she continued to travel by sea in later years, though never with quite the high risks as there was during the 1640s. And you also find a lot of soldiers' wives on board ships. And generally speaking, in this period, the rule of thumb is that if a sailor's wife is on board the ship, the sailor has to give her some of his food. She doesn't get the Navy's fiddle. She's not fed at the expense of the Navy. But when the soldiers' wives are on board the ship, they are being officially transported. They are there in an official capacity. So they receive food and supplies from 
the Navy. And this is often something that naval captains are not terribly keen on. And this is the issue we have here in 1696 when Captain Mings asks about the women who travel with a company of soldiers on his ships. And he asks, and he's told that they're to be carried to wash the soldiers' clothes and that they must go with them and that they must be vettled. So essentially, soldiers' wives are there officially. They're not hidden and they're actually receiving naval supplies on board a ship. As I mentioned earlier, and indeed goes back to the story of Belinda Steele and her family as to why they are on board the Lion in, in Pembroke in 1644 and 1645, they're refugees. They fled from the war in Ireland. And this is quite common. So in 1688, at Derry, Captain Aylmer rescues a number of women and children from the besieged city so that some of the soldiers there want to get their families out and away, especially as it looks like the city might fall. Or in 1646 at the Siege of Bonratty Castle, William Penn's squadron takes away a number of the women and children who were in the castle and they bring them to Cork and Kinsale. And this is really to get the women out of the castle, obviously to remove them from the threat, but also because supplies are under strain. So and obviously they're consuming the supplies. So, you know, the less mouths to feel in theory, the longer the garrison can hold out. So for some women like at Bonratti in 1646 or the women in Derry in 1688, getting on board a naval warship and being brought out of a war zone, in particular a siege, offered safety and refuge. This wasn't always the case. And there are a number of incidents where women are killed or executed or murdered at sea, especially in wartime. Probably the best well-known or the one I know most about and I've written about is the actions of Captain Richard Swanley in 1644, when he captures a ship carrying soldiers from Ireland to aid the royalist cause in Wales. And Swanley takes the 70 men and two Irish women he finds on board the ship and he ties them back to back and throws them overboard. So it's important that while the sea could be a place of safety for women, it wasn't always. There were many dangers travelling by sea. And thinking about this travel by sea and thinking about Richard Swanley's actions suggests that actually women face many dangers at sea. Now, it would be very naive to think that these dangers exclusively related to women. Travelling by sea was inherently dangerous. There were storms, there were shipwrecks, bad weather, cramped, unpleasant conditions. And in particular, the maritime world is often very frightening and strange for anybody who's new to it. And we see this when we see accounts like somebody like Frances Cook's account of the um, storm that she survives when she travels on the Hector to Cork in 1649. Uh, we see it if you read the accounts, William Bradford's account of the the Mayflower voyage when he talks about the seasickness, how the sailors mock them and things like this. And it's quite common. So seasickness is something that affects pretty much everybody who's new to the maritime world. Oliver Cromwell is famously seasick traveling across to Ireland in 1649 as well. But I do think there are some experiences at sea that we can talk about that are very much unique to women and some experiences that affected women in ways that wouldn't have affected men on board a ship. We're thinking here, and I'm thinking here, about questions of space, a lack of privacy, discomfort, the cramped conditions in what is and was very much a very exclusive masculine environment. There are never large numbers of women on board naval ships. 
even when wives travel, you're looking, you could be looking at a ship here with three, four, five hundred men on board, and you might be talking about 20 or 30 women on board at most. On some instances, there are only one or two women on board a ship. So again, here there are questions about what was it like to be in this very masculine environment, and questions about vulnerability and status. What's it like to be one woman on board the ship, or one of one or two? It might be fine if you're Queen Henrietta Marie. You're the queen. Of course, everybody's going to treat you respectfully. You are going to have a, quite a bit of privacy. But what happens when you're one of two women on board and you are the servant of somebody traveling abroad? So, for example, uh, Bolstrode Whitlock, when he sent as ambassador to Sweden in the 1650s, he brings two laundresses with him. They're the only two women listed as part of that fleet. Now, there may well have been others there, but what's it like for those women? They're not going to have the comfort and status and protection necessarily as somebody like the Queen would have. Now, they may well have been traveling with male relations. Again, it's the difficulty of finding out some of these things. So, unsurprisingly, certain women had access to privacy, royalty and noble ladies in particular. As a general rule of thumb, the higher your status and wealth, the more privacy you could expect. Captains generally allocate cabins and cabin space as they see fit. At the back of the ship, the biggest and most spacious cabin is the great cabin, and that will generally be allocated by a captain to the highest status female passenger. As Captain Whitaker in the Chatham says here, he allocates um, the roundhouse, his cabin, to Lady Beeston, and then he has to take one of his officers' cabins, which turns them out. And there's a huge issue in the Stuart Navy about space and cabins. It's worth being aware in this period. Now, some of you might have visited something like HMS Victory. And if you're at the stern of Victory, you'll see a lot of officers' cabins. And these are all wooden structures. In this period, most of the cabins on a Stuart warship are canvas partitions. They can be rolled up quickly out of the way. So having a cabin on one of these ships, it's not necessarily very big. It's not necessarily very private. But some privacy is probably better than no privacy. But privacy comes at a cost. And this is what Belinda Steele found out because she was a young unmarried woman and she spent time alone in the great cabin with Captain Richard Swanley. And this is one of the things that actually damaged her reputation at the time and that people complained about and indeed smirked about and made jokes. So we see Swanley's servants kind of joking about this and it's all a bit nudge, nudge, wink, wink. And this is a problem for women. So spending time alone in the captain or going back to the Selby, the woman who spent time in the cabin with the Captain Clark there. The woman and Captain Clark says she was a nurse and that he was ill, but the very fact that she wasn't related to him and she spent the night in the cabin with him massively tarnished her reputation. And a number of the sailors basically, you know, they said she was an idle woman, a lewd woman, and a number of them suggested that she had a sexually transmitted infection that she'd given to the captain, which was the cause of his illness. So you can see privacy and that there's a lot of issues going on here. And then there's the question about, well, what about the ordinary sailors' wives? Because relatively few women had access to a cabin or private space. And most sailors don't talk about women on the ship, where they slept at night, how they spent their time. Uh, one of the best sources I have found for this is Henry Tung. And Tung was a chaplain on the assistance frigate in 1675 and 1676. 
And the reason Tongue's journal is brilliant is because this account here on the screen, this is his first night on board the ship. He's never been there before. He doesn't, he's not familiar with the naval world. So actually he tells us a lot of detail that naval officers never remark on because it's so normal for them. And what Tongue does is he describes what he sees when he goes down below deck and he sees the ordinary sailors with their wives there, how they're spending the night. You would have wondered to see, hear a man and a woman creep into a hammock, the woman's legs to the hams hanging over the sides or out at the end of it. Another couple sleeping on a chest, others kissing and dipping half drunk, half sober or rather half asleep. Choosing rather might they have been suffered to go and die with them than stay and live without them. And this is this lovely account that we have from Tom here. And you almost get this sense of this chaplain coming on board and almost his, I don't know, jaw dropping as he sees this scene down below. And I think this is a question that I think really interests me because actually these women are just here. There's nothing abnormal about this or unnormal to people. And indeed for sailors' wives or women who are familiar with the maritime world and the naval world, this is probably something very common for a woman in a town like Plymouth, who's probably used to going over and back visiting friends and family on naval ships, because Plymouth is a major naval port from the 1660s onwards. This type of experience is not necessarily uncommon. So I think there's a lot to be said about here, about thinking about, well, actually, what was it like? to be a woman on board a ship like this. And a number of other instances in Tongue's diary do shed some light about it. So it's something that I really want to explore. And I think it shows some of the ways that I, this project interests me, going back to Belinda Steele, because there's a lot of complexities here about how being on board a ship affects her. So Belinda Steele and her family are refugees from the 1641 rebellion in Ireland. They give a deposition in 1643 after they're forced to flee from their home. And Belinda's father, Captain Richard Steele, goes to Wales with his family and he initially serves the king before he abandons the king's cause and fights for parliament before he's killed. And it's at this point that Belinda Steele and her family, her female relations, her mother and sisters, are thrown onto the mercy of Captain Richard Swanley. And they're in a very dangerous position in 1644 and 1645 because excuse me, the Royalists are advancing in South Wales. And as the family of a turncoat, who have lost virtually all of their wealth, all of their possessions in Ireland, they're in a very, very vulnerable position. And this is one of the questions I'm really interested in for the these refugees, these women. What's it like being on board a ship like this? So yes, they have the protection of the captain. And there's clearly something going on with Belinda Steele and Captain Richard Swanley. She's caught, um, you know, being entertained by him in private. She's caught in a number of what I would suggest are compromising positions with him. They go riding together. She's seen kissing him. And so there are questions here. Now, at some level, maybe Belinda Steele is a willing participant in this relationship. You know, we have the dashing Captain Swanley who has saved her and her family. Maybe she's a young woman besotted by him. He is on his second marriage at this point in time and he is considerably older than her. But it's not unheard of. And there are some other examples of this kind of women you know, essentially falling for the naval officer who has rescued them in a time of war. But there's also the question, and this is something in my mind, and I, I don't think we're going to find an answer to this, but actually, is Belinda Steele a willing participant in this relationship? What happens if she doesn't 
play along with Captain Swanby? Will her and her family be put off the ship? Does she have little choice but to acquiesce to this relationship because of the extremely vulnerable position that she finds herself in? And this is kind of one of the things I'm interested in with this project in terms of teasing out what it's like for women who are on board these ships. How do they find themselves there? What are their options and how do these things play out? I think it's quite complicated, but I do think I've seen some other examples already. And I think hopefully this is something I'll be able to say a lot about. And one of the other things that quite interests people and that interests me is whether or not we'll find any women in disguise on board naval warships in the 17th century. We have a number of good 18th century examples. I'm not sure if good is quite the right word in that sense, that because some of these are very heavenly fictionalised. But when we get to the 18th century, we find accounts of women in disguise. So people like Hannah Snell, who serves as a Marine and in the Navy, for example. And this is one of these great problems, because if a woman goes on board a naval ship in disguise, well, if she's not found out, if she's not discovered, we won't know about her. Essentially, she's in disguise, she goes on board, she's enlisted under a male name, and she won't turn out, turn up in the historical record. The women we find tend to be when they are discovered. They are often discovered because it's common knowledge. They are often there because the captain has tried to smuggle female relatives on board or soldiers have smuggled their wives on board. When a regiment is travelling overseas, and this is particularly common for regiments going to the Tangiers garrison, they're shipped on naval ships and they're only allowed to bring a small number of women with them. And so some wives disguise themselves to sneak on board. So that's actually where I found quite a few women in disguise on ships here. I've given you two lovely examples here, the Mayor of Plymouth, and this is the La Rochelle expedition in 1628. And the commander of the expedition sneaks his mistress on board. And at this point in time, he's feuding with the mayor in Plymouth over supplies. And the mayor basically rats him out because he's brought his mistress and the habit of a man on board. Captain Charles O'Brien, um, in he's of the O'Briens in Munster, and he is rep reported in 1669 to be bringing a pretended kinsman. So he's telling everybody that it's a kinsman, but actually it's well known to everybody in the Navy that it's actually a kinswoman who he brings on board in man's apparel, and he enters her in the ship's log under the name as Francis O'Brien. And this is for a voyage to Ireland. So again, this is actually really commonly known. And we come across this case because Samuel is complaining about the fact that everybody knew about it and did nothing to stop it. So again, it's not necessarily that women are hidden. We can find a lot of women in disguise in this period, and it's quite a popular theme in ballads. So we see a lot of these warrior women ballads also for soldiers in the 1650s and indeed later wars. And so the English Broadside uh, Ballad Archive is a great resource for this. And you get an account of it. Most of the ballad accounts tend to focus on women who follow their lover or their husband to sea after he's been pressed, like the maiden sailor. And you can see in the thing, you know, she's found in a man's habit and she's discharged, but she declares she'll go again as long as her sweetheart serves in Flanders. 
or the she mariner's misfortune. And again, she resolves to come along to sail with them. And that's kind of a very common theme in the ballads themselves. Linking the ballads to reality is, of course, a much harder thing to do. But I think it's something that's really interesting. And again, it shows that there's this popular cultural idea and knowledge there. And I think definitely there is a grain of truth in some of these stories. And again, this is something I'm hoping to really tease out with this project. So I've told you a bit about some of the women who were on board the ship. So what did sailors think about having women there? How did they feel about it? Well, we think of sailors as being very superstitious. And of course, there's the old superstition that it's bad luck to have women at sea. But as I've said here, actually, it's pretty common for women to be on board naval ships. We do have some sailors who blame women for their bad fortune, accidents and storms. And occasionally women are accused of witchcraft. So I have a couple of incidences of this. Actually, when we get down to brass tacks, most of the accidents come about because we've got wooden warships, gunpowder and candles. So it's no great supply, surprise as to why ships blow up and accidents occur in this period. Uh, one of my favourite stories comes from the Civil Wars, and this is the loss of the Duncannon frigate at the Siege of Yawl in 1645. Murr O'Brien, Lord Enchiquin, gives a very elaborate and very fun account of why the Duncannon blew up. And it's important to remember that, firstly, Enchiquin was not present in Yawl at this point in time when this event happened. He was in Cork, if memory serves. But he describes how a cannon shell from a cannonball from the Confederate artillery besieging Yawl flies in through an open door into the powder room of the Duncannon frigate where there's an open barrel of gunpowder and there just happens that there is a woman standing over the open barrel of gunpowder with a lighted candle and lo and behold the cannonball decapitates or the cannon candle falls into the gunpowder and the ship explodes. If you look at William Penn, the Admiral's account of this, and indeed other accounts, the reality is very simple. The captain of the Duncannon frigate, Samuel Howitt, made a mistake, and he underestimated the accuracy and skill of the Confederate gunners, who were very good, and he brought his ship into range, and they basically pounded him and got hit the ship and blew up. Again, another example of blaming a woman for the loss of a ship is the fire that destroys the defiance at Chatham in 1668. And Edward Barlow, who writes a very, a very brilliant account of life at sea in the Restoration Navy, describes how the gunner's wife causes this loss and suggests that it's evil to have a woman on board, as you can see from the quote, and they should be banned from naval ships. The interesting thing is that Barlow was nowhere near Chatham at the time. He was in Tangier. So again, the question of what's the source of his knowledge for this. Again, sailors are sometimes very willing to blame women for disasters that befall them at sea. And we see complaints about women for bad service or neglect of duty. So John Menz blames women for bringing plague uh, into the fleet in 1666. And he says that his fleet is pestered with women and there is many petticoats as breaches on board. It's a lovely quote. And the fleet's at Portsmouth and he wants permission to see, to put to sea because he fears disease. And uh, this is what he writes. Neglect of duty is another thing. There's this feeling that once a captain's wife comes on board, he won't go out looking for trouble. He'll instead go on a pleasure cruise to show her the sights and have a nice time. 
and we see this in 1649 when Captains Harrison and Peacock are supposed to be patrolling against Confederate and Royalist privateers. Instead, their wives come on board and basically they do nothing. They vanish into the ether and nobody hears from Harrison for a month. And the Admiralty advise and they write and they tell the commander to simply say, if you permit, that's the generals at sea, if you permit your captains to have their wives on board, the state will suffer much damage, as it has formerly, to my knowledge. Of course, the admirals at sea, the generals at sea, order the captains to get their wives ashore and to not allow them to come visit. Doesn't seem to have much impact in the real world. The wives continue to visit. But one of the things that's interesting here is we have these negative perceptions because people write them down. But what about positive perceptions of women on ships? And actually, I can't really find any. So far, I've not come across any sailor saying, it's great, I love having women on board the ships. But I actually think the absence of evidence here is telling us something. I think it's so common and that actually most people don't complain. And if you read Henry Tung's journal or if you read most sailors' letters when they survive, they appreciate women who are, visit them. They're thankful for having the visits. So somebody like William Penn in his diary notes with pleasure when he dines with the Admiral's wife because she brings a letter from his wife. So I think actually most sailors appreciated women being on board and don't necessarily have these negative stereotypes. It's also worth noting that Edward Barlow, who I mentioned a few minutes ago, who complains about how the woman and women are evil and shouldn't be allowed on board naval ships, has a double standard. When his sister comes down to visit him on the Yarmouth when he's stationed on board that ship, he's absolutely delighted that she spends time on board the ship and visits and they have great discussions about family affairs and he's able to sort out a number of things. So I think actually most sailors do seem to appreciate having women on board the ships. So to flag some conclusions, as I said, this project is still in a very, very early stage at many levels. I have a lot of archives in the next year to head up. I kind of formally started two weeks ago. But one of the things that strikes me is that this is the Navy of Samuel Pepys. This is the Navy that is becoming the biggest employer in Stuart England and indeed Stuart Britain. And that there are huge amounts of records. The Navy is a bureaucracy. The financial records survive. So I'm going to be able to dig into a lot of this contracting business to find out more about it thinking about opportunities for women and work. One of the things I really hope with this project is that I'll be able to say a lot more about women and work and doing business in the 17th century, women and nursing in the early modern period, about landladies, about caring for the sick more generally. And so I really hope that I've given you some insights into the project today. As I said, this is very early days, so hopefully this might be a watch the space and I might have the opportunity in a few years to come back and share some more of this. But just to wrap up for those of you who are interested and um, I don't know about anybody else but COVID has been a bit of a bugger for research and trying to do things but one positive of COVID has been the National Archives now allows you to access their wills online for free and for quite a while I wasn't able to find out what happened to Belinda Steele she kind of vanished into the ether for me to some extent but I think I've now found her and actually and th this is lovely it looks like her and her sisters did well 
I found her in her brother's will in the 1670s, and she seems to be quite a wealthy woman. Her brother has actually become involved in privateering in the Anglo-Dutch wars, and he leaves quite a, a substantial amount of uh, property and money to her. So at least it's nice to see that while her reputation may have suffered at the time in the 1640s, 20 years later, she's doing all right for herself. So thank you very much. And I'd love to hear your questions, thoughts and suggestions on the project and anything I've said here today. So thank you very much. Thank you so much, Elaine. Uh, that was wonderful. And I think really striking in a number of ways, even at a relatively early stage. And I suppose you're a big body of research. But it's one of the things that really strikes me is the diversity of sort of sources and questions that you're asking and just the things that you've been showing us and talking about from depositions to material culture to ballads to the sort of negative evidence and i think negative evidence but positive experiences is really quite striking <coughs> so um we're going to move to some questions here um and quest if you want to put your questions and answers questions in the q a tab um i also um have a hand up here from Jane Omar. So I'm going to allow Jane to ask her question in person and then pass on to some of the questions we have coming in text since that hand is up. If you do want to ask a question in person, use the hand up thing on the participant screen and we let you do that as well. Um, so Jane, I'm going to ha hand over to you initially. Thanks, Patrick. Elaine, that was absolutely fantastic. What a great project. And, you know, already you're finding such amazing stuff. So many, many, many congratulations. Really exciting. I have many questions, but I'll just focus on, on, on two. Um, so the first relates actually um, to, and you hinted at it, is, um, I suppose, sexual violence towards women. I wonder if you do, I mean, are you seeing any evidence of, of, of illegitimate children, pregnancies? And that also brings me to the whole world of children and whether or not children are on board uh, with their parents. So that's one question. And then, Elaine, if I could ask you another completely separate one. And it takes us to the women on shore. So in other words, um, do these women live in communities uh, in London, in Plymouth? Um, and what proportion of them are Irish? Sorry to be parochial, um, uh, uh, but I've been very struck by Bethany Marsh's wonderful work on the London Metropolitan Archive uh, and the identifies these Irish communities. And, and I know there's a lot of Irish men in, in the Stuart Navy. So uh, uh, I, I don't know if you can uh, answer those, Elaine. And apologies if you haven't had a chance to look into any of this yet, but well done again. Thank you. Um, I'm probably stronger on the first than the second because some of the onshore is where I'm moving to. And I've, I've um, only had very short, I've had about half day in the LMA. But um, I think, yes, uh, sexual violence, I'm definitely encountering some of this. Um, uh, some of it is truly one or two incidents I've encountered are absolutely horrendous and vicious and very very nasty um it, it it's often coming down to a question of status and vulnerability so somebody like henrietta maria of course isn't going to be harassed on a ship um definitely some uh, other sailors wives uh, at the moment i've uh, encountered a couple of cases in the court martial records where women accuse sailors of rape but every single one of those cases has been recanted which you know, there may be more, they're just the ones I've found so far, but there's clearly something going on. And I do wonder, and all of these are gang rape cases as well, which I think is quite interesting. Well, interesting, but interestingly, I do wonder if the women have been pressurised 
to recant. And there's definitely questions of reputation and knowledge. And feeding into your second question, these women come on board the ship. They're from a maritime world. They're from a maritime community. And court martials are not private. These women would have no expectation of privacy and that. And I do wonder if this is feeding into the them recanting yeah there's there's definitely a lot going on there again it, some of it does seem to be who and why the women are on board on board women traveling with husbands and male protectors clearly seem to be less vulnerable uh yes i've definitely found some children on board but i mean this is a navy that would be recruiting quite young children anyway so you would have boys on board and indeed there's actually questions of sexual violence against young boys and vulnerability to older crewmen and that is a kind of side tangent in terms of homosexuality because that actually features probably more extensively in the court martial so that is something i will be looking into in more depth and i think trying to work through the things i think there are maritime communities and that's something that's really interesting you see them in places like Deptford, Chatham, uh, maritime sailors wives will live close together support each other um, I have found some women who are Irish but not hugely in terms of percentage at the moment often the women aren't necessarily saying especially when they're giving evidence they're not necessary they're telling you where they live now and unless you're kind of trying to interpret names that may be Irish you're kind of so I, I came across um, some women uh, that the surname was Mora and there are some definitely some Cork connections there so but some of them they're just simply you know when, when they give their evidence it, it, it's not as clear-cut but I think that is something I really want to investigate the kind of these communities on shore how they work together live together and indeed support each other when their men are away often for years at a time. I suspect on that, as you get to work with the financial sort of records of petitioning, certainly going by Margaret Hunt's work about 25 years ago, I think, if no longer at this stage, um, it was beginning to, beginning to show some of those networks in a way that I think nobody's built on since. But I think so a couple of questions coming in here. One question coming in about sources, um, mm -hmm. just in terms of material culture and that fascinating flag that you showed. I love it. It's brilliant, isn't it? I suspect you're right. That it's only the wonky ones that survive because they don't get exposed to the elements. But um, are you using material culture sources, and have you are you trying to incorporate non-archival sources into this project? Um, I will be. Um, interestingly, that flag also survived because people were interested in it at the time. It was on display, according to the Maritime Museum, it was on display in Chatham Dockyard for a long time. You can see it's been patched up very extensively. It's the, it's the classic, it's an original flag, but how much is original is, of course, open to it. You can see the patches are open to interpretation. But yes, no, this is something I'm, I'm very keen to incorporate in, um, some kind of archaeological evidence, anything I can find. And um, women are very involved in, for example, the production of of um, compasses. So places like the Maritime Museum have there's good survival of 17th century compasses. So I'm hoping to try and, you know, as I work through, incorporate some of this material in what I'll find or not. So like thinking archaeological evidence, shipwreck. So you have the London shipwreck and we find evidence for women. I'm doing some stuff. There's a side angle on this project with some Swedish stuff, uh, not so much the Vasa, but some other things there. So I'm trying to think about, well, what sort of archaeological evidence are you finding as well? So hopefully I'll be able to incorporate these things as we go along. Super. Now, um, and we have another question from 
somebody remains anonymous and um, they thank you and they say this is very interesting so that's good and one idea that you've highlighted during your presentation was that it really was no secret that women were on board ships they're allowed to be but then why do we often think they shouldn't be there where does that come from that's the first question and with a related question how is it related to how contemporaries ashore thought about these women who spent time in their in a masculine environment how were they perceived by 17th century english society that's a suspect a bigger question <laughs> yeah, I think about the first one. Um, I think yes, I think there's a bit more widespread general superstition that women on ships are bad luck. But again, I think that's just kind of the perception we have, and I, I mean, you see it occasionally at the time. But uh, I, I think they're they're just there, and the sailors clearly love having their wives on board. In when you know when they're in harbour in Plymouth, also there's a huge problem with in the Anglo-Dutch wars with impressment. It's very difficult to find sailors, so when you get them on board your ship, you don't let them go ashore to visit their wife and so it's much easier to let the wife go ashore and this I come be rowed out and spend a couple of nights on board the ship and then put her ashore rather than let the men go ashore so I think the navy just has to be very practical it's also and, and this is I think something that I, I'm, I'm hoping to expand the project into a bigger thing about women in the sea the 17th century is a century on the move there's huge movement going on here there's women are traveling by sea probably more than ever before so thinking about uh, transatlantic crossings women traveling to the east indies to have all of these places and so there's just phenomenal amounts of women are going to sea who might never have before you know even sailing to ireland there's huge amounts of trade women are going on quite commonly on trading voyages which you see in high court of admiralty records so I'm not sure about the perception of women on these ships. I've not seen anything by people on shore. If How familiar somebody who lives in Cambridgeshire is with the fact that there were women at sea, I think it's probably slightly neither here nor there. Whereas women in maritime communities, this is the norm. Um, officers' wives would go out you know, to have dinner on board to visit. The royal, royal family visit ships. It's quite common for the Queen, uh, in particular, um, Charles II and James II, as he becomes, are naval monarchs. They are massively interested in the sea. They build royal yachts. They poodle up and down the Thames on them. And there are so many noble and royal women doing this that actually I don't think there's necessarily any kind of disparaging comments by people. So and I think if you lived in a maritime community, I've seen incidents of now not many of a few women who just go out for a day trip to visit a ship, even though they've no connection with it. Some oh, I can't remember her name now off the hand. She's not from by the sea and she lands somewhere. I think it's Hull. And there's just a naval ship in port. And she's like, oh, let's go see it. She just goes out for the day. And because she's of a high enough status, she's shown around and given a nice meal. And she thinks it's all wonderful. She was, of course, in Hull, but um, leaving leave that aside, yeah, no, I think... Uh, Where we recorded, I think Hull is a wonderful yes, I very much indeed. enjoyed my life. Absolutely. Um, no, no aspersions cast. Um, just to remind people, if anybody wants to ask a question, please do write it into the question and answer box there or put up your virtual hand. Um, just <coughs> while we're there, just a few other... There's another... One or two other things that strike me that I suppose... that. In terms of the so the ways in which um, women are interacting with the navy, and you mentioned briefly their press gangs in, this, in the Anglo-Dutch wars, do you have a sense of women in terms of leading anti-press gang riots? We have some sense of this in the 18th century as being very resistant, coming into and leading to sort of negotiations between corporations and captains and town town councils and so forth. 
is there any sense of women taking an active role in combating or impressment or yeah. organizing it? They're very active. There's two strands. The, uh, one is the patronage and petitioning strand where they will write to get their men folk back they'll use everybody and anybody they know you know usually that they've been left in a poor condition so very active in that sense petitioning and that's one of the strands in particular that I'm, I'm interested in dealing with but they're yet yeah, they lead and you often um, like peeps fears gangs of women because they're chasing from obviously back pay and impressment but yet yeah, they do and they're often quite successful especially local magistrates don't like impressment anyway and um, when all of a sudden you've got 30 or 40 women at your door it's just, just give the men back and damn the Navy, you know, it's not your problem, especially if you know it's going to impoverish these women and leave them on your parish, on your charity. So, uh, yeah, the women can be very active in that. So at the moment, um, I'm seeing in archival records um, hundreds of petitions about this type of issue, about getting, you know, my husband's been impressed. I'm a poor woman with however many children and so on. Please release him. And that. <laughs> I'm not seeing much joy in actually getting the men released. The people they get released tend to be apprentices because obviously they're under, they're, they're banned. And you, so that's where we're, yeah, that's actually where women are quite successful. And there's a, at least one case where the, uh, the woman goes on board the ship to get her apprentice back. Um, he was her husband's apprentice and she's now a widow and she goes to get him back and he doesn't want to go back. He's had enough of her and pretty much the captain and everybody's, you have to go, you know, you can come back in a few years and go to sea, but you have to go back with her. And she pretty much hauls him off the ship. You, you, you do get the sense of the slightly comical, probably people jeering at him, being dragged back. I think he was an apothecary's apprentice. Yeah, certainly cuckolding, perhaps. Um, <coughs> I think we should, no other questions immediately imminent. We might just leave it there. I think there are two things just to say before we finish up. And thank you, Elaine. I think one thing to just Remarkable. One of our forthcoming seminars um, in a few, few weeks' time is Professor Jane Whittle from the University of Exeter. We'll be talking about our Women in Work project. And I think there were great commonalities between the work that Elaine is doing here and indeed the work that Susan Flavin is doing as well in terms of thinking about women's work. And I think it's great, it's great to see these sort of commonalities across a number of major projects at the moment. Um, and I think there are things that we can learn from on the Irish side of the water to think about in terms of the sort of economic history sides of this project, which is absolutely superb. The other thing is just before we thank Elaine is to just um, note that next week we have no seminar um, and that the following seminar, and I've just seen the notice has turned up in the chat there, is Professor Kenneth Austin um, from the University of Bristol. We'll be talking on, I think, a very different topic, correspondence and correspondent networks in the Reformation. Um, so that will be on Monday, the 28th of February. Until then, we shall just thank Elaine in the usual way, which is not very satisfactory at the moment, unfortunately. And we hope to welcome her to Dublin on an archival trip in the near future. Um, and just to thank you all for your attendance and for your questions and your attention. Goodbye and thank you. <coughs> thank you very much. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures, stamping provenance towards the history to of the Time of the Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The
hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.